So we're doing a series on discipleship in the Gospels. That's what we're trying to do, discipleship in the Gospels. I'm trying to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, look at selected passages, look at different concepts from these books, and trying to just use them for our disciple-making. I won't cover everything in these books. I'm just covering things that I think are, are really uh, helpful. We're on message number five of the series. I did a general overview of the uniqueness of Matthew's Gospel last week. I'm, t- today we'll do Mark's Gospel. Lord willing, we'll do Luke uh, next week, and then uh, we'll con- continue from there. I want to take a look at the Gospel of Mark today, and what's going to be interesting is you're going to be turning to some other passages in your Bible. You might be thinking, well, how is this helping me to understand Mark? But I really think if you're going to understand a book of the Bible, it'd be helpful to understand some things about the author of that text, right? Um, and then we're going to look at some some things about the Gospel of Mark, right? Now, when you look at the Gospel of Mark, I want you to notice it's 16 chapters. That's a lot less than Matthew, Luke, and John, right? It's, it's almost half the verses that you get in those others. And some people wonder, like, why is that? Well, I think one of the reasons that you see that is Mark is really just trying to get to the point. Uh, Mark is giving you a snapshot of Jesus' life, um, and it's, it's, it's quick. It's powerful. It gets right to the point. How many of y'all like it when people just get right to the point? That is Mark's gospel. So if you're thinking, I've never read the Bible, where should I start? Well, if you're an impatient person and need to grow in Jesus still, then go to the book of Mark, right? He's just going to get right to the point. You find in the book of Mark, there's constantly these, this turn of phrase of immediately um, and following that, immediately following that 41 times. So if you're looking for something that's quick, powerful, gets to the point, that's Mark's gospel. Now, uh, Mark is often seen as the first gospel written. Some would actually disagree with that. There's a lot of disagreement out there. But generally, uh, most would say that Mark is the first gospel written. He's trying to give an account of the life of Jesus. Mark gets right to the point. He goes zero to 60 really fast. You don't find that Mark doesn't give, although he does give details at times that are different from other gospel writers, like extra details, you do find that for the most part, he doesn't do as heavy bulk teaching as what you may see like in Matthew. Matthew has five major teaching blocks. There's a couple teaching blocks and they don't have the same, uh, they don't have as much robustness as what you see maybe in Matthew. But the goal of this book is that he wants to show Jesus as a powerful servant, as a powerful servant. Now, a lot of times it, it would be the idea of, well, Jesus is just a servant. And I would say in reading this book and looking at it, I would like to really say he's showing Jesus as a powerful servant, right? A powerful servant. Sometimes when we say the word servant, we just think of weakness. But Jesus is a powerful servant. You'll see this in the book of Mark. So let's talk a little bit about if you're taking notes here today um, and you're kind of wanting an outline. Here's point number one on the outline. The author's name. The author's name. Now, his name's Mark, but often, sometimes, you'll see him named, like in the book of Acts, as John Mark. John would be the Hebrew name. That word John means Jehovah is gracious. If you're wondering what would be a good name for our kid, if you decide to choose John, then that's the meaning, Jehovah is gracious. But Mark is his Roman surname. That word Mark, his Roman surname, means large hammer. Of course, I think how fitting that God has him write a book from a guy. And the, the name that's used of, of him is Mark, the large hammer. And actually, when you read the book of Mark, it's almost like a large hammer has come out. It's nailing things, nailing things right on the head 41 times from immediately and straight forth. And you find that's kind of what's happening in the book of Mark. That's why it's so quick, so succinct. It captures a lot of ground. It's trying to cover the life and ministry of Jesus. It's trying to show him as all-powerful servant. So that's Mark. He hits it right up. Now, if you're taking notes, here's the second point. So we looked at point number one. It's the author's name of the book, which is Mark. But then number two, let's look at the author's family. The author of the book's family. Let's look at Mark's family. The scriptures actually speak about his family. kind of helps us. If you know a little bit about the background of a person, it really helps you to appreciate this book as you read it. Now, it's interesting. If you have about an hour today, right? If you're going to plan to watch some NFL football today and you're thinking like, what could I do during the halftime, right? Um, Or what can I do during the commercials? 
right? With in one football game, there's at least an hour's worth of commercials. You in a in a just a normal general reading can read all sixteen chapters of Mark. It takes just about an hour, right? You could power through it pretty quick. The way he gives details, there's not as many Old Testament references as Matthew. You can kind of plug your way through it pretty quick. But let's talk about the author's family, point number two, the family of Mark. Um, if you'll take, we'll come back to Mark, but we're going to turn a couple scriptures, go to the book of Acts. And as you get to the book of Acts, go to chapter 12. So take your Bible, go to Acts, and go to Acts chapter 12. Let's talk a little bit about the author, Mark himself. Go over to Acts chapter 12. Just turn there to Acts chapter 12 and we'll look at something. It, it's believed that Mark was an older teenager, uh, about probably an older teenager about the time that the Passion Week is happening, the, the crucifixion is happening. He was from a well-to-do family. His mother's home was a location where, do you remember when Peter, when the angel releases him, he gets out of prison in Acts chapter 12. Where does Peter go, right? Remember where he goes, he knocks on the door. They're kind of surprised that it's Peter. Well, that is actually Mark. That's Mark's mother's home. Now, if you take Acts chapter 12 and look right here and we'll pick it up. We'll go in verse 11. And Peter came to himself and said, Now truly I know that the Lord has sent his angel. He rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people that were expecting. So, Peter gets out of prison, The Lord release, uh, an angel of the Lord releases him from it. Verse 12, and when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. Now remember, his name is John Mark, right? So this is, this is the actual John, who is also called Mark. And there were many gathered together and were praying. And we knocked at the door of the gate. The servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So this should seem very familiar. You've seen this. So that is John Mark's mom's residence where the early church was gathering, and this is where Peter goes. Now, there have been some, and I can't say this is absolutely, but there have been some that had supposed that this is actually also the place of the Lord's Supper. Um, and I, I can't say absolutely, uh, you know, in my study of it, I can't say yes or no. But just so you know, in kind of church history, there's many that have actually supposed that this is actually where the Lord's Supper took place was actually at Mark's mom's house. Can't say absolutely, but here would be the reasons they would, some people would say that. One is this. When Peter gets released, right, he, he finds his way where everybody's meeting and it just seemed like it was probably a same location. It was very familiar. Um, there's also some that have written fictional stories of, of, of kind of, um, why they think that the tie into this. So do this. Go over, back over to the Gospel of Mark. You'll find Mark says something very interesting. If you've ever read it, you might wonder, what is that all about? In Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14. Only Mark covers this in Mark chapter 14. Now we're in the garden. The arrest and betrayal of Jesus has just happened, right? He'd just been seized. And it says in Mark 14 and verse 50. And they left him and fled. Remember, he'd just been betrayed by Judas, right? They just have him, they have him now in custody. And they all left him and fled. And a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and he escaped naked. Have you ever read that and just wondered, what is that about? Like, why did Mark include that? Well, in some church history, they would say that the reason Mark included that, because that is Mark, who was a teenager, at the, a late teenager at the moment of the Passion Week of the Crucifixion, and that this is, now this is the connection. They would say, well, if that house was where the upper room was, and that was the place that was used, he would have heard the commotion, maybe come up out of bed startled and wanted to follow. And all he could do was just kind of wrap himself with the sheet from his bed. And that's why he's there and kind of, a, you know, just, wrap, you know, who goes out in the middle of the night with a bed sheet at such a late moment? I would say, well, maybe he heard the commotion and went and followed out to the garden. Can't say that's an absolute 100%, but let me read for you what one historian has said. This is a fictitious story, by the way, but let me just lay this out. One historian says this, In the long room of the roof of the house of Mary, 
the rich widow lady of Jerusalem, the Lord and his band met for what was to be the Last Supper. In his room below, awake and alert, for he sensed the danger which lurked about the house, lay Mary's son, John Mark. He heard the hurried steps of Judas on the stairway without. He listened with sharper care, and then the noise of feet and the rest depart. On a sudden impulse, the boy seizes a linen sheet from the bed, wraps it around his body, and follows. He watches under the olive tree, sure that some crisis is at hand, a flare of torches, and a betrayer is there. For the boy's reckless loyalty, he shouts some protest, and angry hands lay hold of him. Slipping out of his sheet, Mark escapes. Perhaps he bore a cruel and mutilating sword slash across his fingers, for an old tradition says that in the early church, Mark was called stump finger. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But whether that was actually the, the location, we do know that by the time Peter's on the scene and he gets out of prison, that that's where the church seems to be meeting at that point. She, his parents seem to be people of means, but very devoted people. I would say this. The interesting thing is Mark mentions this guy more than likely. It, I think it's a good interpretation that this probably is Mark. This is someone who's giving his own recollection. Now, when we look at the book of Mark, we do find that it is an eyewitness account of really Peter. But I would say it, it's so it's really Peter's testimony. I'm going to show you that is what most church history would say. Peter is giving an eyewitness testimony to Mark. But we would find that Mark actually would have seen some things, especially maybe culminating in the Passion Week, especially if this and this guy that's walking around with a sheet, with a linen sheet, um, is actually Mark, right? So that's, if some, when you're studying the Bible, when you're reading, when you got a disciple that kind of says like, what's that all about? That's probably about the best explanation for why that's in there. Now it's interesting, go over to Colossians chapter 4, a little bit about his family. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. I'll give you some time to turn over there. Here's Paul in Colossians 4. He's in prison. He's in his first Roman imprisonment. He's not going to die in that Roman imprisonment. But he is in prison in Rome. We kind of see this at the end of the book of Acts. Kind of pointing us, this is what's going to happen to Paul. This is what happens to Paul. And so notice in chapter 4, verse 10, he's talking, um, he's mentioning some things that are going on. Paul is in this prison epistle. And he says in chapter 4, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings. And also Mark, the cousin of, who does it say? Now, Barnabas, his name means the encourager. If you know anything about Barnabas, he's a great encourager. Well, that was also his cousin, right? And we see Barnabas is pretty dedicated to the mission of God, and we'll see that Mark is as well. But that's the family relation. So you see his mom, wealthy, his mom, at least we see by Acts chapter 12, hosting, um, hosting a place for the church to gather. Possibly could have been a location of the Lord's Supper. Not so sure about that one. That's some in church history. But we do find that he is also a cousin of Barnabas. Now you want to hold on to that idea, and we'll revisit the whole Barnabas idea by the way, if you're looking for a name, right? Son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means, son of encouragement. No one uses the name Barnabas anymore. I don't know if that, because there was a famous guy named Barney Fife, right? Do y'all remember Barney Fife? He was, I guess, a little bit of a, what we call Barney? Um, just a little bit of a goofus, I guess. And maybe that caused people not to use the word Barney or Barnabas or anything of that nature. But if you want to bring it back and bring back a good name, maybe... Maybe Barnabas, that would be a name that means encouragement, right? Now, if you're looking, if you're doing an outline, out, point number three about the book of Mark, the author's accounting, right? The author's accounting of what happened. Remember, he grew up in the home of a devout mother. His mother is willing to suffer persecution. You need to understand that the church was being persecuted, and the fact that she would allow them to meet at her house was a great issue of persecution. So, his mother would obviously have been someone who would have um, had a great, um, a great love for the Lord and was willing to risk all and be persecuted. Now go to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll also point out a couple things. 1 Peter chapter 5. His account, most in church history would say, it's a combination of what small elements Mark would have seen. Because he obviously was around. Obviously his mom was devout. Obviously his mom was involved in the early church in some way. But also, he spent a lot of time with Peter. 
And no doubt he would have actually been with Peter in Rome at the very end of Peter's life. And that he, he got some of his eyewitness account for putting together the Gospel of Mark from Peter. We find a couple evidences of this. 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 15, as Peter is signing off in this first letter, he says in verse 13, She who is in Babylon, chosen to, uh, with you, sends you greeting, and so does my, what does he say? My son Mark. Now, Mark was not Peter's physical son, but Mark had such a relationship with Peter that there was a close familiarity that he would call him a son, like a son in the faith. So it was a very close relationship. Turn over to Second Peter chapter 1, just the next book, Second Peter chapter 1. There was some reasons that people would say this is why we see that Peter is the one feeding eyewitness account to more of Mark's gospel, with Mark having some slightly, possibly during the Passion Week, possibly some other things of his own eyewitness account. You find in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, Peter's on his way out. There's not much longer. And he says this. I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. So there would be some that would go, wait a minute. Peter's talking about stirring up. We already know that he's close to Mark. He even calls him a son. That it's possible this stirring up is not only he's stirring up the people that he's writing, but he's letting them know that, that there's things that are going to be brought back to their mind, and he's going to actually use John Mark to do that. Verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, Paul, Peter says, as also our Lord Jesus has indicated to me, and I will also be diligent at that time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So there are some that would say Peter gives an indication. He's, he's, he knows he's about to go out. The Lord's about to take him. He's going to um, he wants to make sure there's an accurate witness of the life and gospel of Jesus. They're going to be reminded. He's got his son in the faith. He's got Mark. And so Mark's going to have the eyewitness testimony. Uh, that would seem w- one of the many reasons. Also, you're going to find that when you read the book of Mark, you find a lot of references to Peter. And you find almost more details when it comes to anything that has to do with the life of Peter. You find kind of more details as you walk through the gospel of Mark, which... Once again, leads people to believe that that Mark is actually using a lot of the eyewitness testimony of Peter himself, also mixed in with what testimony he had. So, um, that was interesting. When you look at Mark's life and Peter's life, you find out, I mean, you find no surprise why they probably had so much in common, uh, why they liked each other. Y'all know Peter, right? He's like, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm, I'm with you. And then Jesus is like, yeah, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times, right? You, we're, we're, you remember where Jesus starts to tell after, he, after Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then begins to talk about his coming death, uh, right? And then Peter's like, this isn't going to happen. Then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now, so Peter's the guy who has a lot of zeal for the Lord. But at the same time, he has the peppermint sock. He's sticking his foot in, the, in his mouth all the time, right? He, he is... Quickly, I want to follow you, Lord, but then he falls off. He's, um, you know, he's got a lot of excitement, but sometimes he hasn't fully uh, reconciled what it means to carry the load and the burden of a cross, right? And you find this with John Mark. Here in a little bit, we're going to look at John Mark. He sets himself to the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, but somewhere in that journey, uh, when they get to Pamplia, he actually turns back. And you kind of, so you kind of see in Mark's life, there's this kind of exciting, kind of capricious nature. If it's true that in Mark 14, the man wrapped in the, the linen sheet, who seems to, the only reason you be there wrapped in a linen sheet was that you decided to pop out of bed and go out there and find out what was going on. If that was Mark, that really does show the impetuous nature. Because I don't know about you, but if someone is, if I'm going to leave my house, the first thing I think is put on clothes. I'm not just going to go with my bed sheet on saying I'm just, uh, you know. So what kind of impetuous, kind of zealous, kind of quick to do something kind of nature, if that is true, that Mark must have, that Peter has? No wonder they had such a good friendship. No wonder Peter would say, my son. They kind of, they kind of have a lot of similarities. People with similarities sometimes end, end up running together. 
Now, once again, you, uh, some people ask, when is the date of the writing of it? I would say somewhere between 50 A.D. and 60 A.D. if you're looking for a writing date. Uh, there, is some, um, there is some disagreement among when the actual dating was. Some would say Matthew was actually written before Mark. Some would say Mark before. Um, I don't think it's super, a super big deal. I tend to lean personally that Mark was written before Matthew. Um, and the reason is, it's such a succinct gospel. It seems to get out there really fast and quick. Um, and uh, it, it, it seems like that's really a first one. But what I love is the truth that, that even if Mark was written after Matthew, it doesn't negate anything. It's just kind of one of those things about church history. Now, the author's audience, point number four, if you're taking uh, notes, point number four, the author's audience. Well, there, you would say mainly we're looking at Gentiles because if he's writing from Rome, he's writing where he's writing from where Peter kind of met the end of his life. And you look at, when you go through this gospel of Mark, his name was John Mark. His Jewish name, right, would be John. But you find in Mark's account, it's not using the word John. So that tells you that he's not just specifically going after a targeted Jewish audience like Matthew is. However, but he is using the word Mark, which is his Roman name, which is the idea that this letter more than likely spread out from Rome and spread out further from there. Now, Rome did have a Jewish segment, so you still find fulfilled prophecy being mentioned in Mark. But you do find that his target audience seems to be the Gentiles. Um, seems to be, um, it's not as much of a Jewish book as what you might look when you look at the book of Matthew. In Matthew, you find a lot of quotes to Old Testament scriptures showing the fulfillment that Jesus is the Messiah King. But once again, remember, Matthew doesn't leave it there. He actually points that Jesus is for the nations. Um, and Mark comes in, and he's not only the king, but he's the king of the nations as well. But he's writing primarily to a Gentile audience. Many would say, at first, a, a Roman audience. Now, number five on your outline. This is, I think, where I might camp out for a little bit. And trying to give you an overview of this book and an understanding, I really want to come, I really want to focus on my fifth point here, because I think it's really instructional as you read this book. It really helps you to understand the, the author of which you're reading. So point number five would be the author's failure. The author's failure. Now, I'm not saying that he failed with the book of Mark. What I am going to say is, this man, Mark, does not have a completely squeaky clean testimony. Now, you might say, well, of course you're not. Not if you're running around with a sheet wrapped around yourself at night, right? But there's some things in his life that actually were um, a source of contention that in most common scenarios, I think we would have given up on that person. And I would probably say if we were Mark ourselves and had experienced the kind of failure in ministry, we probably would have given up ourselves. But what I love about Mark's life is we get a, we get a picture in the book of Acts of some failures in Mark, but we begin to study the rest of Scripture, we find that actually there was a process of sanctification that Mark is not the same guy when he had his failure. So first let me show this to you. This is point number five, failure. Go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Has there ever been something you wanted to do for God, but you failed to follow through? So did Mark. And God used him to write the gospel of Mark, right? Have you ever thought, well, I've gone too far. God can't use me now. There's no second chances with God. Well, then you'd fit right in with Mark, right? Have you ever thought, no one will ever give me a chance? Or have you ever been in a situation where what mistakes you've made in the past are used against you by still some currently, and you think, I just might as well forget about it. No one's going to forget about my mistakes. Then you have something in common with Mark. So Acts chapter 13 in verse 5, we're dealing with the first missionary journey, right? We've got Barnabas, son of encouragement. We've got Paul. Um, he's now loving the Lord. The church sends them out. And we find that as the Lord sends them out, we find that there's someone that's with them on their very first missionary journey. Let me read this for you. Go to Acts chapter 13. Look in verse 1. Let me build this out. This is the first, just so you understand. Big deal, right? First missionary journey. Big deal. Gospel spreading out. Big deal. Gospel going to Asia. Big deal. So look in chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. 
Barnabas and Simeon, who is called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menean, who've been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So these are pretty powerful men, great teachers. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So the Holy Spirit says, We need to send Barnabas and Saul, who is Paul, out on a missionary expedition to spread the gospel, to start taking it to all the Gentiles, to all the ethne. By the way, side note, do you notice that it's Barnabas is mentioned before Paul? Because really Barnabas is the big leader in the very beginning. Um, And then eventually it switches over and you kind of find that Paul, right? Which just a side note in ministry. Um, The guys that don't do well with ministry are guys that don't let people kind of rise up through the ranks, right? So like, for instance, I'm, I know I'm not allowed to say I'm old, but I'm getting old. <laughs> and so one of the things you find that when us pastors start to get older, we got to make some room for the young bucks, right? And uh, we can't take the prominence and position that we used to take uh, in the past. And so you find even this happens in Barnabas' life. Now, what's interesting in verse 3, when they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. So look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Then they reached Salamis. They began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their what? Helper. This is John Mark. He's helping them. Now, just so you know, this is not an easy thing to go on a missionary expedition, especially the first one. This is not an easy thing. A lot of bad things are going to happen. A lot of treacherous, a lot of persecution. This is not an easy thing. And you want your helpers. You want your people that can help bring support. So John Mark, young guy, right? Young, strong back. Would have been great to have there. Would have been great to accompany. He was there. He was helping them. But by the time you get down to verse 13 of chapter 13, look at verse 13 of chapter 13. Now, after Paul and his companions had set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamplia. But John, what? He left them. And returned to Jerusalem. He left them. He returned to Jerusalem. Now, the scriptures don't tell us exactly what happened that he left them. We don't really know. It could have been some discouragement. It could have been hard. It wasn't easy. This is pioneer mission work. But we do know this. John left. And it wasn't a good thing in Paul's eyes. I'll show this to you. If you take your Acts and go to Acts chapter 15. We're now... So Paul, Barnabas, they go about accomplishing the task. They come back, home base. They're back in Jerusalem. Um, they've, they've, um, they're getting ready to go out on the second missionary journey. Here's Barnabas, which, by the way, remember, Barnabas is the cousin to who? To Mark. That's his cousin. Now, we do know this, right? Like, when it's our family, we tend to always kind of side with our family, don't we? You know, of course, you might be saying like, no, no, we don't. We will cut them down. Well, then don't change your name to Barnabas, right? But Barnabas, he's a guy that's an encourager. And his cousin, he wants to bring him on this second missionary journey. So go to verse 36 of Acts chapter 15. Now, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers and every city to which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. They want to revisit. They want to go back and check in with some of these works that they started. How are these believers doing in the gospel? By the way, just a side note. They're planting churches on the first missionary journey. They come back and they realize as they go out, they need to revisit because Christians need encouragement. Just so we understand. You'll, we will never fully follow God rightly when we have no fellowship with the body of Christ. Even Even they are realizing we have to check in with people. We have to revisit. We have to encourage. It's easy to get discouraged, right? There's there's no such thing as the Lone Ranger Christian. So they're revisiting some of these works. And then verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them. Sounds great. Sounds interesting. Hey, I know he didn't make it on the first one, but he's my cousin. I see a lot of growth in him, Paul. Let's go ahead and take him. But, but Paul kept insisting in verse 38, insisting, insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamplia and had not gone with them to the work. So it wasn't like Paul was like, yeah, you know what, Barnabas, you know, I could see. Let me think about. No, Paul was like, nope, not going to happen. 
We are not taking this guy. Not going to do it. Now, I don't know what was the reason that Mark left that first missionary expedition. The guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. I don't know. But I do know that it was a big enough issue that Paul says, not going to have him with us. And that Barnabas says, no. And that there's a, there's a split and division in the missionary party that happens right here. Look at verse 38, 39. There was a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So two different missionary parties happen. By the way, just another side note, just so you know. You know even good men, good leaders can disagree on certain things, right? And, and, and here's what I love. God had a providential reason for all this in the end. What, what man might have meant for evil or whatever faults that man has, God's sovereign will cannot be thwarted. God used this for his glory in the end because You've got, instead of one missionary party, what do you now have? Two missionary parties. And, and then you find later, Paul's going along and he finds a young preacher boy, Timothy, and disciples him. And, you know, they're pouring into the young guy, Timothy. So God's purposes are always accomplished. So you don't have to worry about, is God going to get his way? God's always going to get his way. But we do find that it's pretty sharp. It's a distinction. It causes such a split. It causes such a rift. So basically... Paul's like, nope, not going to take this guy. He's not profitable for this work. This is what Paul says. Such a sharp thing. Split up the missionary enterprise here. I don't know about you, but if I was Mark, I would probably think, well, I'm done with ministry. Can't do this anymore. Or you know what? This leader that I admire, he doesn't, he doesn't think that I've got it. You ever, you ever messed up in life and thought, well, God's completely done with me. That would probably be the story of Mark. I don't know about you, but if I was Mark, I left. And then my cousin Barnabas, who is the encourager, who, if you remember, no one believed that Paul, right, was actually an apostle now and converted. Does anybody remember who was the guy that convinced everybody that we should take Paul in and consider him one of us? Barnabas, right? So the very Barnabas guy that, that advocated for Paul when he became a Christian, right, with other Christians is the same guy that's going like, Paul, I did this for you. Like, hey, come on. Like, Mark's a different guy. I can see some prog- I can see progressive sanctification. Paul didn't see it. Mark could have used that as something of saying like, well, I'm done. Forget it. I give up. I'm not going to try anymore. Everybody's using my past against me. But the Lord wasn't. What's interesting is, if you'll turn your Bible and look over to Philippians, uh, Philemon, Chapter 23, verse 24. Philemon, it's right before Hebrews. It's a very, very short book. In fact, it's probably one page in your Bible. So if there's ever a time for you to say, am I going to use um, the outline at the very beginning of the Bible to find Philemon, then this is a good time, right? Probably just one page, just one chapter. The book of Philemon, right before Hebrews. You did a bigger book, Hebrews. And when you're in Philemon, look in verse 23. So here's Paul, his first Roman imprisonment, right? Writing, writing his, his, his prison epistles, we call them. Already read for you earlier in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, that who was with Paul in prison? Mark, right? Now look right here. We even find more evidence. He says in verse 23, Epaphras... My fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you. Now remember, this is Philemon, prison epistle. He's in first Roman imprisonment. He will get out from it, but it's a very benevolent prison. It was a very benevolent first imprisonment, not like his second. Verse 24, as do Mark. Paul, who says, can't take him with us on the missionary journey. Paul in Roman prison says, I got Mark here with me. Mark's good. He's He's profitable. I mean, we already see. So whatever happened, Mark didn't use all that discouragement to just give up. We find Mark persisting and pursuing the Lord. Barnabas takes him. It pays off. And Mark is escalating up, right? Now, go over to 2 Timothy. Now, you'll just go left a couple books, 2 Timothy. 
Actually, just one book. You'll pass Titus. Go to 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11... 2 Timothy is kind of the swan song. This is the last of the writing, unless you think Hebrews is written by Paul. If you do, then you wouldn't say that. But this is the last of Paul's writing. He's about to end. He's, he's at the second Roman imprisonment. It's about to be gone. Um, you know, doesn't have much time left. And watch what he says at the very end of his life. Verse 9 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll look at verse 9. Be, gil- be diligent to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present age, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up, who does he say? Pick up Mark. I'm at the end. Need some encouragement. Why don't you go ahead and bring Mark? Bring him with you. For he is useful to me for what? It's interesting. Mark, who Paul wouldn't take on a missionary journey, now says at the end of his life, bring him. He's useful to me for service. So what's interesting is the past mistakes did not define his future. Um, And he did not take that opportunity of discouragement from someone in the church to keep him from pursuing the Lord in the future. How many times have people stopped pursuing the Lord because someone hurt their feelings, right? But, but we don't find that with Mark. What does Mark do? Mark continues to put one foot in front of the other, knowing that God is sovereign over every situation. And Paul, whether it was right or wrong decision from an earthly standpoint, or whether Paul wasn't expressing enough uh, generosity, or whether, honestly, to be honest with you, if you look at Paul's second missionary journey, it's not a very easy thing, nor was the first one. And so Paul had every right to go, man, we're doing pioneer mission work. I don't know if we can take this greenhorn with us again. He pushed the eject button on the first one. But what I do know is this. God is sovereign. He has a plan. Whatever happens in the moment, you repent of it, you start anew, and the Christian life is new beginnings every day. And the focus is not how far have I slid back, but the focus is do I keep taking another step forward? I say to people all the time, the Christian life is oftentimes, you know, Three steps forward, one step back. Three step forward, one step back. Sometimes we get so focused on the one step back, but if you're taking three steps forward and one step back, you're still actually making progress. When we look at the life of Mark, we're looking at a guy who is a three steps forward and one step back kind of guy. But we also hear a guy who, at the very end of Paul's life, he's like, bring him here. Come on, I need him. Bring him. Bring him. Oh, by the way, bring the books too, right? You know, I want to read, which any good preacher, right? That's like my dream someday, right? If I ever go to prison, it's not my dream to go to prison. But silver lining, I can read every book I want to read, right? So I'm just saying, it's out there. But Paul's saying, I only need my books, but man, I need Mark. Isn't that amazing? What redemption God brings. All in God's control. Which is interesting, this leads us to a transition point now. Where we're going to be looking just at the book of Mark. So we find in chapter 4, verse 11, he says... He is useful to me for service. He's a service. He is a servant. Bring him to me. Now, we look at the book of Mark. Go to the book of Mark now and go to Mark chapter 8. When we look at the book of Mark and we're looking for something thematic, really, here's what the book of Mark. Jesus is a servant, but I would actually say he's a powerful servant, right? Jesus is a powerful servant. And the reason I say Jesus is a powerful servant is because all through the book, we see Jesus has power over nature. He can calm the storm. He has power over demons. He can cast them out. He has power over death. He has power over disease. We'll find in Mark 16, he has power over death, right? So Jesus is a servant, but he's a powerful servant. And here's Mark, the hammer, the large hammer, writing a very powerful book, compact, sharp. Now, when you get to Mark chapter 8, verse 27, this servant book, when you get from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 8, verse 27, we've really been seeing a lot of the powerful servant nature of Jesus doing a lot of healing, doing a lot of miracles, doing a lot of things that are authenticating his ministry and who he is. We find Mark mentioning those things. And then once we get to verse 27, it's almost like the book of Mark starts to take kind of a turn where we still find Jesus serving through miracles, 
but not as much as we find in the very beginning. And we find actually everything takes a different turn. It's, it's Jesus is serving through the acts that he does. And now when we get to verse uh, chapter 8, verse 27, it's now Jesus is putting his face towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, and he's going to serve by being the redemption for man. You get to verse 27, and this is that confession, right, that Peter has. It says in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8, And Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he was asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that I am? And he told him, saying, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them. Jesus says, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one. We talked a couple weeks ago why that was said. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and after three days, rise again. So we find that Jesus now takes his service from all the things he did, from casting out demons to miracles to feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000, to now the servant is going to actually come to the cross. If you go over to Mark chapter 10, verse 45, if you're looking for the actual theme verse, if you're looking for what verse actually gives me a, um, you know, a theme verse for the book of Mark, remember, this is a powerful servant Jesus we're dealing with, right? Go to verse 45, and you actually find, actually, we'll pick it up in verse 35. You find that in this passage that there's a talk about what's, what's, really, what's really true service, And you go to verse 35, it says this, Then James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. How strange must that have been, right? Who have you got to be to do that? (laughs) I wonder sometimes if our prayers don't sound like that. Verse 36, And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right hand, one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I, am, that I drink and be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. <laughs> yeah. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. But to sit on my right and my left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. They got mad at him. And calling them to himself, Jesus said, they got mad at him because they wish they would have done the same thing. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave of all. So Jesus says, you're jockeying for first position in the kingdom. Those who are in first position are those who serve. But those who are in first position are not serving out of position of weakness. They're serving out of position of, uh, of power. And that power is Jesus is living in me and I can be a servant of all. Jesus, who is all-powerful, has all control, comes in and basically says, this is what a servant looks like. Go to verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. What have we seen in Mark? We've seen Jesus serving. He's healing. He's raising the dead. He's feeding 5,000. He's curing of disease. He's controlling the weather. He's got all this servant power he's been doing, but ultimately he's going to turn and serve by giving his life a ransom for many. So John, so Mark is trying to do this gospel book, and, and this gospel book, if you're looking for the solid theme, it's Jesus is a servant. But in the end, I would say Jesus is the all-powerful servant. Jesus is the all-powerful servant that spends himself to serve others. But ultimately, he's all-powerful in that in the end, he, he, he serves his way all the way to the cross, becoming a substitute and ransom for our sin. And Jesus is able to pick up his own life on his own. So Matthew, Mark four ten forty five, Jesus came to be served and not to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So as you study this book of Mark, you might be, we, we wonder and ask the question, what, what should we get from it as we read it? And I would say, watch how Jesus serves and watch that once you get to 827, Jesus' service is all about sacrifice. 
And when we're reading the book of Matthew, what should we come away? We should come away the idea of the kind of life that's the Jesus life is a life of service and sacrifice. The kind of life that Jesus has called us to is a life that actually spends oneself for the glory of God and the good of others. Everything in our culture right now is screaming to us, exalt yourself, exalt yourself, make much of yourself. You might be thinking, it doesn't say that. Oh, really? I can't tell you how many times the phrase, well, that person just doesn't have enough self-esteem has come up, right? What is that? That's not Mark 10, 45. Self, self-esteem is the idea of self-exaltation. Or you'll have people sometimes will say, you know what, I've got to put up more boundaries in my life, right? More boundaries, more boundaries. You mean you're trying to put up more ways that you can't serve others? How does that line up with 1045? Now, once again, don't go run off the rails and think that I'm saying that you should purposely let people abuse you. But I will say this, there's something going around our culture that's teaching people that the highest good in your life is to completely protect yourself from anything that would happen. And then I would say, read the Gospel of Mark and notice, Jesus is spending himself for others. And just so you understand, you do read that he gets tired, right? right? He calms the storm, but he gets tired. You do find that when the woman with the issue of blood touches him, he realized that something went out of him. So just so you understand, the curse of the fall is it brings us all into sin, but it also brings sin on mankind. It also brings sin on creation. So don't think that Jesus walking along and doing ministry and healing was just like the equivalent of us swinging through a drive-thru and picking up a Big Mac. It cost him something. It cost him something. Every day he was around sin, it cost him something. Every day he's exercising, he's going the opposite of the fall of what Adam threw us into. He's healing, he's doing all these things. Something's coming out of him. Ultimately, it's leading him to the cross where he's going to do the ultimate, absorb the wrath of God in our place. And Mark 10, 45, Jesus came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life a ransom for many. People say, well, Nick, how far should we serve? Well, when you start drawing blood, let's have a conversation. That's how far we can go. That's how far we can sacrifice ourselves. When we really look at the the, when we look at like the, the book of Mark, we find a man, Mark, who by the, by, through his life is giving himself as a sacrifice for others. Who in the very end, Jesus, uh, very end, Paul is saying, send this guy. This guy is a, is a Mark 10, 45, right? By the way, this book was already out by the time that Paul, Mark had already written this book, right? Uh, of course, they didn't have chapter and verse and stuff, but... I don't, think it would, I don't think it's any coincidence that Paul's over here saying, send Mark, he wasn't, a serv- he wasn't a service in the past, but man, he is a service today. Send him, I need him. And Mark, in pivotal time in Paul's life, was actually living out Mark 10, 45. The very theme verse of what the whole book of Mark was written about, he was living that out. You know, it's really interesting. Even at the very end of his life, Paul saying, Mark, I need you. Come here. You know what we think sometimes? And I don't think we get it. Actually, I think two people don't. Two sides don't get it. Do we all realize we're going to die, right? Have we established that fact that we're all going to die? I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but you are all going to die. Right? Some sooner, some later, unless Jesus comes back, right? But chances are you're going to die. And chances are... Someone more than likely is going to be taking care of you at the end of your life. You know, it's interesting. We, I'm like, the book of Mark, I think, is a great book to show you service in all of life. It shows, I mean, if a husband grabs, grabs onto it, he will be a servant leader in his home. When I say servant leader, I'm not saying one that actually, you know, well, he just lives to do whatever his wife says. He lives to do the glory of God and what's best for his family, for God's glory and their good. You'll be a service with all of life. But even, you'll even find yourself valuing this kind of like taking care of somebody at the end of life. It was really difficult in our culture. This is how self-focused, self-exaltating we are. That you'll have parents now that would rather go spend, and I'm not saying it's the worst, but I would say culture-wide, you would see most people would be way okay to spend every bit of wealth they have 
to take care of themselves when the whole time they've got kids that have said, hey, well, you know, can we take on some of that? Or you get the opposite side where parents might be saying like, hey, we, we're getting vulnerable. Would there, you know, could, you know, we, we need your help. And then the kids are like, man, I've got too many soccer games to go to, right? You know, the Cowboys might win the Super Bowl this year. Like, I just don't have time. And you know what's really happening? We're not valuing the whole idea of Mark. Like Mark, at the very end of his life, Paul said, bring him, he's of service. Do you know that even when you take care of your parents, or even when you let your kids take care of you, that's a service that the book of Mark, promoting the idea of service, is all even. You'll get that connection and tie. So I love the book of Mark as we read it, as you study it. It's a book. It's about service. Ultimately, it's about serving serving to the cross, Jesus offering himself, himself a ransom. Would you pray over this with me, worship team? You can make your way up here. We love you because you first love us. What a glory it is. I pray there's someone here today that is kind of living a mark life. They've stumbled, they've fallen, but they've repented. They've confessed their sin. You can see the, the growth of grace in their life, but they're still thinking back to the old mark. Lord, you let them see that you've still used this man to write a gospel book who gave up early on. Would you let that person be encouraged today? Would you let us be one who doesn't use a person's past to hold them to hold people at arm's length? That we could be a servant. That offers that servant would offer forgiveness, reconciliation. Would you also give us hearts of servanthood where we could be served and sacrifice and serve. Let us capture Mark's gospel, how you mean for him to show Jesus and how that applies the good news even into our life. For God's glory and his renown and God's people said, amen. Let's sing together.